Hey, Noggin Notes listeners, you are in for a treat. I'm Jake Wiskirchen, the host. If this is your first time joining, uh, get used to my voice because I'm also the interviewer. But this week kicks off a three-part series on black mental wellness. Our founder, Safiso Rapinga, is a black man from South Africa. And it was his idea, and I highly support it, obviously, to reach into the people of color community within our mental health profession and get them on the show to talk about, you know, civil unrest, uh, discrimination, um, stigma, barriers to care, and so forth. Come to find out, there aren't too many. Uh, But he did find a wonderful lady by the name of Danielle Busby, who is a co-founder of a group called Black Mental Wellness. And you can go to blackmentalwellness.com and check them out. But she's a, she's a PhD holder and an associate professor in the Baylor College of Medicine in Texas, originally from Michigan, and I really learned a lot listening to her. In the subsequent parts of this series, we're going to interview a couple more people who have different perspectives on this topic. I found it fascinating and um, not at all as hyperbolic as maybe we're led to believe on social media. So... I invite you guys to settle in and listen because uh, we can all learn something by having more conversations about difficult topics. And really, that's what podcasts are supposed to do. We're supposed to have long-form content that delves into the nuance, and we're not just stuck to six-minute video clips in between ads or uh, 30-second talking head sound bites or uh, 280 characters at a time to express our, our thoughts and our views. We, we should do more depth analysis and exchange of ideas in a, a much more informal, relaxed, and flowing manner. So we're just going to try to contribute our part to that. And in the meantime, if you want to learn more about this kind of stuff, you can go check out Audible. We are sponsored by Audible, and if you want a free 30-day trial, you can go to audibletrial.com slash nogginotes and sign up. You get to get a free audio download. You can either be a book or any one of their unmatched pieces of content in their library. And even if you cancel, you get to keep your audio download. So audibletrial.com slash nogginotes. Lots and lots and lots of stuff to cover there that will continue to enrich and expand your noggin, which is what we're trying to do with Noggin Notes. We're also sponsored by Zephyr Wellness, a company that I co-own in Reno, Nevada, and in Sparks, Nevada. Reno and Sparks are sister cities. If you've never visited, you totally should. Uh, Come on out and enjoy what northern Nevada has to offer. Four seasons, uh, friendly people, very close to Lake Tahoe. ZephyrWellness.org is where you can find out more about us or follow us on any of our social media pages, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Without further delay, here's my interview with Daniel Busby. I think you will enjoy it. Well, thanks again for downloading our content, everybody. Uh, today with me is Dr. Danielle Busby. Hello, Danielle. Hello. Thank you for having me today. Did I pronounce the S appropriately with, with a Z instead of an S or is it Busby? No, it has the Z sound. You had it right. Okay, but, good. Mm-hmm. I always worry about things yeah, like that. Yeah, with a name like Wiskirchen, you tend to respect other people's uh, pronunciations. <laughs> um, you are, and I'll let you do your your uh, verbal resume. Everybody likes verbal resumes when they introduce, but um, you currently serve as a an associate professor uh, within the School of Medicine at Baylor University in Houston, Texas, uh, but at a children's hospital doing psychological stuff. So um, that's kind of the brief overview, but tell us, tell everybody else what it is that you do and why you do it. And uh, we'll yeah. get the interview underway. Absolutely. Um, so I am, like I said, I'm an assistant professor at Baylor College of Medicine slash Texas Children's Hospital. Um, there I primarily do work around trauma and grief as well as depressive symptoms and suicidal risk among adolescents. Um, I've been there for almost a year now where previously I was at the University of Michigan in the Department of Psychiatry there. Um, And my work there was really centered around barriers to care, particularly among um, Black college students who are at elevated risk for suicide. So this kind of makes up, uh, you know, the range of my areas of interest. I'm really interested in like this traumatic stress piece of things. So that could be trauma, but also experiences racial discrimination. I'm also really interested in what protects against that. So like what entities in the community and your family in the world, how do we cope with that? How do we make it better? And then the system piece of it, like utilization of treatment services. So what gets in the way, what facilitates it? 
So I do this work because I'm passionate about it. Uh, I think it's necessary. Um, and, you know, my work with Black Mental Wellness as a, a co-founder there is largely because I really saw such a lack of resources, uh, understandable information, um, just like a, a hub for where people could go for information within the Black community specifically. Yeah, let's hover there for a second, because I want you to talk about that. Um, our founder, Safiso, who, who is bl a black man from South Africa, um, had this idea that we should do a series on people of color in the mental health world, because uh, they're few and far between, frankly. Um, and we need to give, we need to shed light and give voice, uh, because there are a lot of people who need services and, and often like either are afraid or don't have access or just are ignorant of what's out there. So, um, help maybe help the listening audience who I can presume is broadly white or non, non colored, um, understand like what the dynamics are and how they're different for people of color in seeking mental health treatment and how you guys came together as a group to form black mental wellness. Right. Okay. I'm going to start with the Lo second loaded part. question. I know. No, it's cool. I'm going to start with the second part of your question first, because I think it's going to help answer that first part. Um, so we are a team of four clinical psychologists. All of us are black women um, who have PhDs in clinical psychology and how we came together. So Nicole Kamek, Dr. Nicole Kamek, she's our president and CEO. And she had this idea prior to our starting, maybe a year or so prior, where she was becoming frustrated with um, needing certain resources. She was working in a VA, needing certain resources for her black patient population to help them better understand aspects of depression or help them better understand aspects of how it may present for them, which sometimes will look differently from what we would consider to be the typical presentation, right? And so in this, she kind of developed the idea. She got the website together, like identified the name and, and thought a lot about that. And then she really started to think about who she thought would be, you know, the best people to kind of create this team with her. And Nicole and um, Jessica Henry and myself, we all went to George Washington University, um, and we all had the same academic advisor. However, we were in the program at different times. So Nicole had finished first. Jess was probably, the, like she's in the middle. And then I was um, an entering student. Jess was probably in her like third year when I entered as a first year. And Nicole was nearly done. And so she knew we had the same passion just because when you hold that same advisor, you have a similar interest. And I, really, we just happened to be talking one day. And I was just telling her that I thought that I was going to do something very similar to Black Mental Wellness by myself. Which in reality, I'm like, that's crazy. I can't imagine how that would look. I'm so happy to have a team. Um, and really, we just got tired of feeling like there wasn't um, adequate resources, adequate, adequate information, and that there was such a stigma around mental health in the Black community. For myself, I used to feel like um, a lot of times, by the times I would see my patients, if they, if they identified as Black, it was way later in their, their symptom presentation, right? They were far more severe. When they could have came in far earlier, we could have had a better prognosis or, you know, just a, a, a easier course of treatment. Um, and, and that bothered me. And when I went to the data and it showed that that was like, a, a, like several studies have found this, that was concerning. So that's when I really had these questions around, like, how do we change the system like if we have this model of meeting people where they are how do we change the systems that we're working in to really meet the needs of the black community in a way that they can understand it that they can receive it and and, and it feels relatable and and comfortable right and i mean just given the historical context of how the healthcare system has been in this country there's been instances of such mistrust already built between the black community, I mean, if we're talking like Tuskegee experiment, if we go back there or whatever, all the different things that have happened that have brought us to this day. And we just were like, we have to respond to that. We have to have something to do in, in shifting that narrative. So uh, just to be clear, when you say she worked for the VA, was that uh, Veterans Administration or Virginia? Yeah, a VA okay. hospital. Mm -hmm. um, that's that's going to be super useful for me. Uh, I'm going to talk to you offline about that because I've, I'm doing work with the VA here uh, and then uh, federally a little bit. So if we can combine forces, I think it'd be great. Um, I want to hover on that that topic of like lacking resources, lacking access, uh, mistrust. If you could give some like crystallized, for instances, uh, I would I personally would appreciate it because I think I may have a gist of what you're you're referring to, but like, what is it like? being a black person in America 
who, you know, struggles psychologically. Uh, and then what, what's the barrier there? Like how, how is it different, I guess, from anybody else? Cause we always talk about mental health being stigmatized broadly. How's it different, I guess? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to start the first place I'm going to start. Um, it's just like from, I'll, I'll even reference some of my research. So in looking at black college students who were presenting as elevated risk for suicide, um, in a, in a study, we, and when looking at the black college students particularly, the primary barrier to care was perceived need, right? So they, it was a limited perceived need. Like I actually am presenting just like everybody else, right? Mm-hmm. At, at elevated risk. But I'm perceiving that I don't need to re- seek services, even though I'm having symptoms that are consistent with what we would consider to be elevated for suicide risk, right? And part of that, I think, if you just look at the history of Black people in this country, or like Black Americans, or, or Black people, um, you know, across the world, really, like, if you think about instances of like that historical context of where you've come from, at least if I'm going to talk from the U.S. perspective, um, you know, we've overcome a lot of things. We've overcome slave, we, like our, our ancestors have overcome slavery. We've had to make it through um, like the Jim Crow era of our, of our history and so on. And I mean, if we want to bring it to present day, I mean, there's been an increased attention as it relates to George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. I mean, we can continue to go on as it relates to police brutality. That's not a new issue, right? Like that's something that we've been dealing with. So if you see right. people in your community constantly transcending or finding ways to transcend these difficulties, sometimes it may feel like I shouldn't need this additional help because I'm supposed to be strong. I'm supposed to come from a history of strength and overcoming and all these things, right? And so that narrative can be built to be like, you um, shouldn't need this additional help. And then you definitely shouldn't need it from people that may or may not have your best interest at heart, right? And so when you say, like, so I, that's my first point when we're trying to like crystallize it, right? Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So when you think about it being different, like everyone doesn't have that historical context in which they, they're growing in, right? To have this piece of like what you're supposed to overcome. Or even if you think about the black community and its relationship to the church, um, there may be a lot of uh, perceptions or indirect messages that say that like, you're not praying hard enough. You're not having enough faith. Um, that's why these problems exist. Like, or, or, I mean, I think the church has gotten so much more progressive in that you can go to therapy and you can pray and those things can be work or that, you know, God made clinicians, God made ways of treatment. Like, you know, and, and we've had more progressive conversations in that way, but that's not always the case. Sometimes it does feel like, you know, it's something internally wrong with the way you're engaging in your faith or, you know, you're not being patient enough for this blessing that may come, Right to solve some of these issues. And so I think those instances, and, and, and when we talk about mistrust, when, you, when you've learned, and sometimes it's not in the public school system, but if you've learned from your family, I know my father was really big on like in, in, educating me on just the his, history of black people globally, but particularly not only in the country, but in the city I grew up in. And you know, you have knowledge of the range of ways in which we've been oppressed and we've, you know, like our, our health and our wellness hasn't been prior, prioritized in the same way. If you look at, it's um, Black Maternal uh, Health Week, right? And so if you look at maternity rates, right, of, of, of death, when, when we're talking about childbirth, right, there's, there's a study that talks about how when Black women express that they're having pain or they're having, um, you know, they need additional support or whatever, that they're not being perceived or taken as seriously, as, uh, as when you look across races, right? Because this idea, even, even if it's in, un, unconscious, it may be an implicit, like, you know, you're not intending to think, oh, you're really strong. You're, you're a strong black woman. You're okay. And so even the experiences you have with healthcare providers, and then we have data to show we're seeing differences and we're having higher rates of, of people, uh, you know, of, of, of deaths for, for mothers, that's concerning. So you, you, you develop a sense of uncertainty about the system that is intended to take care of you about is it really doing that uh, and i mean we can think about that similarly with the police force right like you're supposed to protect but somehow this group of people keep ending up on the other side of things in a way that doesn't seem about protecting mm-hmm. right and so i think i hope that answers you know generally like that idea of like what is it like yeah for sure uh, do you do you study much carl Jung? at all or Joseph Campbell, you know, about archetypes. Yeah. Um, so what it sounds like actually is like a modern archetype of the 
the black individual, male or female, doesn't matter, is supposed to be strong. And whether you're of melanated skin or not, uh, both entities end up believing that in some regard or another. So uh, the, the black individual is like, I'm supposed to be strong. And the white individual is like, you're supposed to be strong. And so we end, that ends up being almost like an unconscious archetype of some degree, which is fascinating to me. I've never considered that before. And I appreciate you. In your behaviors, in your expectations, totally. in the way you move, the way you, what you think that person can, is capable of or not or whatever. And, and we talk about that, all the data on like, um, just the biases we hold, like everyone has yeah. them. We all struggle, like with trying to box people, right? Yep. In these ways. Um, but it's really important for us as providers to be conscious of that and intentional of, what that could mean for someone's health, right? It's really important for police officers to be really intentional and purposeful about knowing that we know bias exists. What does that mean for how we protect the world, right? Right, right. yeah. Um, something I discuss uh, frequently in supervision is I, I teach this concept that was taught to me by my friend I mentioned before we, we started recording, Christian Conti. It's called the analytic self. And it's supposed to be this disinterested, neutral third party that just observes your interaction with another person. And I often explain that this is why therapy is so hard is because we're mentally exercising more brain power to take ourselves out of it and observe what are we doing, thinking, feeling, what's the other person doing, thinking, feeling, how is that exchange going on? How can I moderate what I'm saying to be understood better? Um, and I think what we're inviting here is to take ourselves out of it and, and try to um, acknowledge all of the, all of the crap that we bring into a, a conversation which is very, very challenging if it's unconscious, right? Because by definition, you don't know it's there if it's unconscious. And yet that's, that's what, what's required. If we're going to have good conversations and be understood across whatever multitude of lines and, and distinctions we may have. Um, going back to the, to the experience, though, it sounds, like, um, it sounds like people of color are really conflicted because you've got this messaging that says, be strong. Um, and then you've got another message that says, uh, you know, maybe from advertising and marketing it says, Hey, go seek help. It's okay to seek help. But then you've got this mistrust and there's, there's like a suspicion that's inbred. Where does the suspicion come from? Well, history, I think one, right. And I think I just walked through pieces of that, yeah. but then I think um, additionally, there's a questioning of who am I going to, who am I going to be speaking with? Right. Like who is that person? Are they going to understand me? Are they going to be able to relate to my experiences? Um, am I going to have to explain away aspects of myself, whether mm -hmm. it be cultural or whatever, that like feels like effort when I'm already having a hard time, right? Um, and is it going to work? Is what you do going to be helpful for me, right? And I think you know, we know in therapy, like the strongest predictor of outcomes or like a really important component of how an intervention goes is rapport, rapport. Yeah. right? Like how comfortable I am with you, how much I feel like you understand me, what that energy is like. Like we know that that's going to really influence outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about you just, you know, even when we, before we started recording, we talked about when looking for providers of color, Right we make up a very small population yes. of providers. And, and I think we should ask ourselves why, why is that the case? Why? And so, so that makes it hard for someone who may be identifying as a person of color, who wants a person of color as a provider. Well, it makes it hard if that person, if it's not enough to, to meet the need and, and not saying that it always has to be, you have to know what your presenting issue is to know what, you know, matters for you sure. as a provider. Because some people are like, Oh, I actually need to see the exact opposite of me. Cause I don't, want to deal with judgment or, or whatever their reasons are, right? Like I've seen people tell me I want this type of provider or that type of provider. Help me figure that out. Um, and I think it's, it's important for that comfort when you come into a space. So um, I think those things really contribute to that suspicion of like, is it going to Are you really going to, yeah, are you really going to hear me? I don't know. And, and history has told me that you may not have always been on the, on, on the side of making sure that my values, my health, my whatever is of top importance, right? And so I'd be, I'd be nervous too. And so that's when I, yeah. and I tell people that. I'm like, I, I want to meet 
meet people where they are. And like, that's a very real thing. There are that all those things can exist and all those things can be hard. And that's where black middle wellness came in. Like, how can we make that easier? How can we provide more information or, you know, strategies? I mean, even people reaching out and like, we've been like helping people find providers, right? Like, okay, so what, what are your needs or what's your insurance? Like, let me, let me help you do that. Cause sometimes the task itself creates the barriers because right. it's unfamiliar. I say all the time, like, um, we have all these initials at the end of our names. If I wasn't in the academic world, this is alphabet soup to me. Yep. Like PhD, MD, PsyD, LMFT, LMSW, like, what? Like, how do you know who I'm even seeing? What do those letters mean after your name? If there's no education around it because you're not really exposed to it, and this is your first time in this system, yeah, it's just a lot of unknowns. It's a lot of questions. And on top of that, I mean, I look at some of our Psychology Today profiles, too, and they all kind of just sound the same. <laughs> it's like, okay. Like, oh, which person, if I don't really, like, if this isn't my field or this isn't what I do. So most people are just going off their... If they have insurance, going off their insurance checklist to say, right. I mean, and like, and those don't even include pictures. So if you have a preference around race or identity in any way, you don't even have a way to know. You may try to guess using a name, but yeah. how productive, how effective is that? Right, <laughs> so, right, totally. So it's a good segue into what I was going to ask next, which is um, how, right? How do we improve the situation? Um, obviously, there could be recruitment efforts made to grow uh, therapists of color, clinicians of color. Um, that only goes so far. Uh, you got an existing body of, of providers like myself who are, you know, eager. And I, I like to think I'm non-judgmental and I meet people where they are and I try to skirt experiential comparison and go more toward emotional, uh, experience so that we can validate and move forward. And, uh, and that kind of thing, it takes it out of content, moves it into process. What can, what can we do to train up uh, clinicians like myself uh, who, you know, I'm a white male born and raised in Reno, Nevada, I'm fifth generation. Like I, I just don't experience a lot of people of color. And yet the more experience I get, the less I think I know, which I think is the way of lifelong education. Um, so it seems like it's, it almost seems like a, a really daunting task to say, well, I'm at an arrival point where I'm comfortable advertising myself, uh, which then seems disingenuous, right? <laughs> like, hey, I'm I'm good with people of color. You can you can ask me, and people of color are going to be like, really? <laughs> uh, yeah, you look a little pasty to me. So, um, how do how do we how do we do that? Right. Um, I'm thinking about so many different things. I'm thinking I'm gonna I, I organize things when I think about points I want to say. Um, and you said a long question, so things I want to say in the beginning. Yeah. But yeah, I'm really good at that. They hammered me for that in grad school. Like, no, no more multiple questions, Jake. Ask one at a time. I'm like, oh, that's a good question. Wait, the first one was, okay. But, um, okay, how do we do that? That's a great question. I think that's a necessary question. I think we need to continue to be asking that question. I think, um, well, one, Black Men and Wellness, we have a national training program. And basically, we um, put out that we're accepting mentees. And so basically, mentees come in with us for the year the and this is because we want to build a more diverse work work workspace middle health field and what we felt is that a lot of times there's not a lot of people to guide you in that process and so for all of us we wouldn't be where we were if it wasn't for mentors that literally gave explanation after explanation time energy i'm the first person in my family to receive a phd when i went to my parents they didn't really have a clear understanding of exactly what that meant. I mean, they generally got what I was saying, but they didn't know that it was a research component and like all the little bitty pieces you need to know in order to even be granted acceptance. And that's things you're doing as an undergraduate, right? And so I'm so thankful to my mentor, Tiffany Griffin at the University of Michigan. She was phenomenal. She was a graduate student at the time. And she just made it a point to explain to me the process. Um, and so basically we have mentees come in, we take them under our wing for that academic year, but really it ends up just being there under our wing. And we do didactics about how do you get into grad school? What are different mental health professions in which you can go into? Um, for our more graduate level students, we try to really tailor things to their interests so they can progress and get more opportunity and more exposure. And so one, I think it's about giving of your time, energy and efforts to really bring forward that next generation. And they may be one person for someone if they're running a, a, a private practice or maybe they have a lot of stuff going on. And that's just creating opportunities for students 
that may have less access or maybe have less people in their family or in their more their inner circle to ask for some of these resources right um if you really want to say what do we do i think we need like i'm a i'm passionate about education i'm passionate about academic achievement and I think all of this stuff happens before you even get to undergrad, right? Like who yeah. is exposed to what? Who knows what about what fields? If we're saying that this patient population is, is coming into treatment at significantly less rates than everybody else, they're also probably not exposed to that career field, mm -hmm. right? Like they don't even consider it. It's already bad to go to that provider. Why am I signing up to be that provider? Like that doesn't make sense. Um, but I mean, I'm not saying that's everyone's thought process, but I'm saying that's one route sure, sure. that really want to think about access we have to think about it from every standpoint like who's even going to college versus who's not who's even having certain opportunities to even be in a position to really be competitive for a doctoral program right like those are very competitive to get into what type of initiatives are you spearheading or, or even contributing and that could be financially that could be time as a mentor in some capacity and honestly, when I think about my mentor, I call them my mentor board. I call them my board of directors. So these are the people across my different spaces that have really formed and shaped me and, and are people I go to to this day for advice. They are of every background, right? And I think you need people from every background on your team when you are learning a, a system. And every one of that, of all backgrounds are in this field. So we can all still be promoting that growth and that training of um, more diverse students throughout. That's, that's what I think. So we all need a council of advisors is what I'm hearing. That's what I do. Everyone has their own way. That's how I know. That's how I keep track um, of if I'm making a, a really big decision, I, I go to them to see. You're, you're making a lot of uh, personal efforts to do this, which I really appreciate because uh, that, that resonates with me. And probably just because it sounds cool to, to get validated that somebody else is like really working hard and not just like, talking about it um but you're you're literally making the efforts um where are you and and speak to your your colleagues too with black mental wellness about where are you doing this do you go back because you're originally from detroit do you go back to michigan or do you do it in houston or all over like because you guys are like more more or less virtual right yeah so and we started that way so i like to always start that way like when nicole brought us together i know i said we all were had the same well three of us had the same advisor and then um, Nicole had did a postdoctoral fellowship with Dana Cunningham and that's how that this group formed um, and she's kind of like the meat that brought us together but um, we started as a as a conference call it was just like hey we all are passionate about this thing like let's just get on this call let's like talk about what it could be and we literally just hashed out like at first I, we thought it was just a good thing to do I don't know if I was you know like I was like this is just a really good thing to do I don't know how it's gonna go Let's, let's, like, I have a vision for all the different ways it could look. And it took off because the need was so there, right? So like once we established ourselves and like we put together the website, we wanted to make these free resources. We wanted to make information um, just like easy to translate in, in lay terms. So that's where social media came in, right? Like how do we, you know, bring that into the loop? Um, and so we're all in these different places. So Nicole was in DC. Dana's in um, Maryland, but very close to D.C. I was in Michigan at the time, working at U of M, but free, I'm from Detroit, so I was back and forth to Detroit. And then Jessica was in Atlanta, and then we would just take contracts where they came. And so they, like, our contract for Detroit allowed, like, the budget allowed for them to fly in. If we had something somewhere else, we would all consult on it and maybe, like, present, or, or maybe one person would present or two people. We would just take people from the, to the team, and it, it's everywhere. So, and now it's actually helpful for us because a lot of things are happening virtually and that's already kind of how we meet. Yeah, as I was, I was explaining in the beginning before we started uh, recording, um, I, I like the podcast to be encouraging and uplifting. So if somebody's listening and they're like, oh, I could totally do that because uh, it, it can be, it can seem intimidating when you look at a website like your guys uh, and you go, uh, I don't even know how to start something like that, right? And you started with a phone call. It was just like some people connected through a common person uh, or common academic program. And, and that's awesome. That's how, that's how the world should work. Um, but if you could please describe uh, what you, you alluded to the, uh, to the Detroit contract in the schools. You're, you, you mentioned you're teaching social emotional learning. Um, and y'all get to go up there and teach together. Apart from that, what else have you gotten to do? So it kind of highlights for the listening audience what's possible out of this thing that sort of just grew out of nowhere. It was very organic, right? 
Yeah. Um, okay. You did the two question thing. I know. Said, what did I get out of it? I mean, how, what's possible? But then you said, what would I say to listeners about like, as yeah, like relates- list, list some of the programs that you've done so that they can, you know, see what, what you're doing and what's possible and, and maybe <laughs> want to hire you. Got it. Yeah. So there, so yes, the, the program in Detroit was, um, for students K through 12, where we put together workshops that were very specific to mental health and wellness. We want to, our real idea and uh, how we approach much of our work is like, if you get the information, especially to kids early before there's a problem. So if I generally know how I identify emotions in my body, like, oh gosh, like my heart's pounding, my stomach hurts, I'm sweating, whatever your thing is, like if you are able to identify that and then have some coping strategies on deck just for everyday stress. When, there, when these things are increasing or if there's like a functioning problem as we move on and you're still do, like you already have some skills, you're going to fare better. So when we work with youth, that's really our model. And so that K through 12 workshop, those workshops were really um, developmentally appropriate for that, those age groups. So that was why, right? So we had like song lyrics and hip hop stuff to help with our older kids and then, you know, games and, and more fun stuff for our, our younger kids. Um, as it relates to what we do with corporations, we lead um, trainings on a range of topics. So as COVID happened, a lot of people reached out to ask us to talk to their employees about health and wellness via their different HR departments. Um, as it relates to the racial stressors and, and tensions in this country and how that's coming in on top of COVID, that was making, you know, certain employees and black employees specifically uncomfortable, but also their their colleagues are like, I see my 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 colleagues aren't doing well. And so they took initiatives to say, what can we do for our team that's predominantly whatever group? Or even like if there's uh, organizations within larger organizations, like affinity groups that are particular to, to black employees, they're able to provide resources for us to come in and do workshops on how do you cope with this? How do you think about it? How do you process it? How do you move forward with it? Um, and so, you know, we really try to meet people with what they're needed. So we have a, a range of expertise. If there's an idea or there's something that's particular to your company, your firm, whomever that you think needs to be addressed as it relates to wellness, mental health, diversity, equity, inclusion, all of these items are things that we're really passionate about. Um, and we've been able to, to touch and to think of, and I think that segues nicely into like what can come from it, right? So all those opportunities, all those experiences, all those connections, but I think what's been really dope has been that I've gotten to meet all these different people, right? Like we're on this platform where we don't even know a lot, like people share so much with us and we try so hard to like, you know, share that back. And we've done more of that through our like authentically me collection that just went through in May. And I can talk about that later, but, um, you know, people are just so vulnerable with you and open with you. And I get to meet, you know, someone that's like, oh, I've been doing this podcast and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. Can you come talk with us and help us understand this aspect of, of your work? So it's been cool. And I, I mean, I just say do it. Like, take the first step. Um, you never know, like, the what can come from it. I, you know, when Nicole called me, I was just like, yeah, this is a great thing to do. I would never, I didn't know it was going to be as, be all that it been and all that I already can foresee it being because it continuously grows like a snowball and just yeah and, and if you do one good work people learn about it and then they refer others and so forth and, it, and you're right it just it snowballs and that's awesome do you recognize any themes in your clients like are they are do they tend to be black people or black owned companies or are there you know white folks out there who are like, Hey, I just need to get out of my echo chamber. Come in and help me. Uh, like what, what, do, what do you see? It's been some of everybody, which is probably the thing that I love the most. And I think a lot of that surge really came when George Floyd, when that time period happened, we had, a, uh, and we got listed in Cosmo magazine as a resource wow. and we got listed, um, by the American foundation for suicide prevention as a resource. Um, We've been in parents.com magazine, like a lot of different wow. things have happened around our work. And, th- and these are people sometimes that we didn't even know they were listening to us. It would be like they found our website and they found the resources and they were like, go here for all these range of things. Um, so, you know, like through those different exposures, that's really widened the range of people. So it's not only black, it has been black owned companies. It's been corporations it's been um schools school districts uh hr departments will reach out to us specifically to ask about 
like what we offer and what wellness, what, what they, they, they feel our primary concern. Um, we've had, like we do a lot of wellness collaboration. So these are people that are like, we have something coming up with um, someone who owns a bar institute. So bar is a type of workout and she wants to expose it to more people. She's a black woman and the black community isn't as active with the bar uh, community. And so that's a wellness community collaboration, um, yoga instructors, uh, people who uh, highly are connected to like healing energies. It's been such a range because we really know that like wellness happens everywhere. Um, and even like we, we feature beauty beauticians, barbershops, because a lot of times in the black community, at least that's the person you may feel most comfortable with and you're sitting with them for an hour or however long, and they'll get a lot of, of discussion around all the things that are going on. So it kind of looks a lot of different ways. How much of this work that you're doing centers on like what we would traditionally call behavioral health or mental health and psychological stuff as opposed to uh, anything else like uh, improving communication, managerial skill, uh, you know, some of those other things. Are, are you finding yourselves drawn to these folks with because they're like super curious about the mental aspect specifically, or is it like, hey, we just we just need help navigating? Right. Um, so some, so a good portion is like more wellness global, right? But that's because a part of our mission is really to stay community based. Right, like we want to stay connected to communities. We want to be partners with communities. We want to be helping communities, and so that always looks a little more diverse, right? Um, but there is an aspect of our work that, like, very behavioral. I would say. I mean, I think I'm more of a integrated provider, but I, I'm more behavioral, like CBT based in general, and like my thinking and, and treatment approach. Um, but we still have those sector of people that want us to come in and, and, and work with like their training program, right? That is within psychology, for example, mm -hmm. like where we were all trained in, or wanting us to work with or or maybe consult on a project that's very specific to the black community and they want this perspective within their, their development of a particular prevention or intervention or something like that. So because we kind of have that training in that specific background and work it helps inform a lot of the work we do more globally um but i would say about half and half we try to keep it balanced do you do stuff internationally we will we were happy to. yes i like to hear that yes <laughs> we had some things on the calendar um we were supposed to be potentially in bali and doing like being a part of a a, a retreat which was going to kind of have like this yoga element this more wellness element as well. Um, and it was going to be for black women in the workplace around stress management. I can't remember all the details, but it was supposed to happen in Bali. It was supposed to be a small intimate group and we were supposed to go and lead some of those like sessions. Um, but COVID. So yeah. yeah. That, that seems like everybody's but conclusion is over. If anyone is in the international community and would like to be connected, we would love that. We and we love to travel. So let me just tell you this. Who doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> especially if somebody else is paying for it uh right. yeah it, it, the the COVID thing has really been been challenging um and I want to shift gears a little bit into that and talk about suicide prevention intervention postvention you mentioned AFSP which is the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention um I've done some work recently with uh, suicide prevention I mentioned in, in the firearms community and um mm -hmm. that's that's a whole ball of wax that you know people who don't want to come get help because they're afraid the government's going to take their guns or whatever and the clinician's going to tattle on them or what so um with covid and and i want you to just talk loosely about this no no pointed specific question necessarily but what what are you seeing in terms of you we've worked a lot with the businesses and so forth um workplace depression anxiety working from home all the the obstacles that are stacked on people now trying to raise a family as well as do their work as well as educate their children all in the same space uh, people aren't allowed to connect anymore we're losing you know community um suicide rate is it's been increasing for the last seven or nine years uh longer than that 13 i think something like that and um what are, what are you seeing? You do a lot of research with suicide prevention. You do a lot of work with companies. Um, I know what I'm seeing, but this isn't about me. This is about you. You're my guest. And I want to hear your perspective on this. Yeah. I mean, you did a really nice job of laying out all the things that are not going um, so great. Oh. <laughs> you know, 
all these different spaces. But to speak to, to suicide risk aspect specifically in regard to what I'm seeing. So this is kind of like outside of the realm of Black mental wellness and more of my professional as a provider, right? So I'm a licensed clinical psychologist working in a children's hospital. And I mean, so this is coming from the perspective of I'm working with the child, but I'm seeing the family, right? Oh, yeah. And so we have had such an increase of just referrals, people needing providers because I don't think it's just COVID in the sense of like COVID has allowed these things to happen. Because yes, that's part of it. But I think of it like how if you, sometimes I use this analogy in therapy, if you're holding a brick for two minutes, your arms may feel one way, but if you hold those two bricks for like two hours, they're going to feel heavier, right? And yeah. I think getting to that point, because it's been happening for an extended amount of time, that I think we're really fatigued, right? Like we're just tired. And I don't know if a lot of the solutions or, or things that we've been doing to try to cope, we're, we're really for like the short term, right? And yeah. we're all entering into this space of like, oh my God, this is about to be here. Like, yeah. this, is, this isn't going anywhere. And I think we're just starting to try to think about things in a more, what's actually sustainable, not just what can get me through. You get what I mean? Because we don't even know Absolutely. through what. Like through to where? Like where are we going? We don't know. Right. Um, so I'm actually, am, I'm seeing what you said. Like I am seeing that increase. Um, and I think with, with kids, I think the biggest concern a lot is around the school, right? So like virtual school just happened. They're really nervous about going back to school in the fall. Some school districts um, have said you get a choice and parents are like, oh my God, I'm too nervous. So no. Some are like, I want a choice because I would send him because doing it at home is creating more stress and more conflict. And we're constantly fighting about, are right, did you do the work? But it's hard for some students, particularly like if I'm working with a kid that has ADHD or some, anything that maybe makes it more difficult to just sit in a computer and yeah. like try to learn something. So I think all of those, like, what are we going to do are coming up. Um, and, and, and as it relates to, I'm seeing some increase in my in my adolescence, like ideation around things. I haven't seen any actual like attempts or like methods, any of that within the caseload that I'm working in. But I can see how the isolation piece of this, particularly when we think about risk, like we know social support, community connection, all those things are so protective, right? For a lot of these symptoms. However, I think it's been really important for people to get creative about what connection looks like, right? So I think it's I've seen I've also seen while I've seen that bad like the stuff that's not going so well I've also seen families get creative right um where they're developing new traditions um one of Nicole always says this uh about her family with she has a daughter a seven-year-old they've made this new tradition with her aunt where they get on zoom and every Sunday they do a dinner together like she's cooking she's oh, cooking cool. and like now she's actually learning her aunt's recipes because her aunt's one of those people that's like no nah, you can't know how I'm cooking get out the kitchen so <laughs> it's like creating new traditions or, um, you know, me and some of my college friends, we've been more consistent with, like, the Hangout app. Have you heard of that? Like, where you can go on it and, like, play games? No. Like, tattoo or, like, win, lose, or draw. Or, or just little games that you can play. And it's, like, it's called House Party. That's what it's called. Oh, wow. Cool. And so, like, we've been more intentional about connecting. So, I think parents and families, even my, like, one of my families, mom is struggling with working at home while having to also babysit not babysit, but parent her child. And so she sets up Zoom dates for her child with friends at the same time as her calls. So they're occupied. Like all these different, I'm also seeing a lot of creativity. I'm, see, I'm seeing a lot more outdoors activity and, you know, just trying to figure out what do we do because we got to cope, right? It's just we're, we're, we're with less resources on how. Yeah, it's it was fascinating to me. We we my wife and I and the kids went searching for uh, patio furniture the other day, and there's uh, there's two furniture stores next to each other, uh, sandwiching uh, Sportsman's Warehouse. And so in between going to the stores, we went into Sportsman's Warehouse so the kids could look at the you know, stuffed animal heads on the wall and whatnot. And we cruised in, and we we looked at like we we immediately went to like the shoes and clothing section, and they had some water shoes on sale for the kids. We got those, and then we walked around the store, and then. Um, Heather says, uh, I, I need a life jacket because she didn't have one. And so I said, yeah, I, I, and I know the story. I was like, yeah, it's up there where the kayaks are. And I was like, wait a minute, there, there used to be kayaks up there. Did they, are they not selling kayaks? And come to find, and then I look around, I was like, holy cow, the entire camping section was wiped out. All the water sports, all the vests. I mean, it was crazy. And why? Because everything's closed. Where are we going? Outdoors. And, you know, that's sustainable for 
a period of time, if you live in the, you know, the North, like I do, we get winter <laughs> and I don't know what we're going to do in the winter, but I, I appreciate your sharing some of those strategies that other people are using, because I think that's what we need. We need, you know, what to do, what, what are some of the hows in how we, we cope with this and sustainability is important. We, it seems like we just all need to turn our minds around the idea that uh, this is, this is for a while and there, there won't be an arrival point. But, and, and like, we are resilient. We sure. have things happen before. I feel like we're seeing people, I mean, honestly, even when you think about the, like when we talk about racial tensions and I think the reason parts of that has even received more attention more recently, because we had, we were in the midst of COVID where you're sitting and you're thinking and you had time. Yeah. And you're not moving at a hundred miles per hour. And no like, distractions, no movies, no sports, no, yeah. And I think that's brought a different energy to some of the things that we have been seeing, right? Ah. And so, I don't know. I'm always on the, all right, this is a strategy. Like, what's, what's positive that's coming out of this? What are you grateful for in this moment? I mean, it's actually been, I mean, I moved to Houston a little over, a little less than a year ago. So I'm like, was anticipating to be able to travel back and forth to Michigan and see my family. It's really made me build a community here. And I have like closer, I feel like closer ties faster than if I, when you typically move to a city, it takes a little time to build your world and, you know, get to know people, whatever. And so it's like, wow, like that's been nice about this. So really trying to be on the, like, all right, it's tough. We acknowledge that, but how can we be grateful? How can we make it better? How can we, you know, be creative? I don't want to gloss over that very important point you just made about be sitting still and ruminating. (laughs) Cause I think that for as much as we're, anticipating that everybody is going to be compelled into connectivity again with their families. Some of the uh, inadvertent or uh, unintended consequences were that we sit and spun in our thoughts. And some of those thoughts have been around for quite a minute and now they're coming to fruition. And I think that's a really important point that I had never considered until this, just this, this moment. So I appreciate that too. That's fascinating. I'm going to have to spend more time on that. I want to, I really want to honor your time because you got to, you got to get out of here. Um, but I want to circle back just briefly, maybe, and, and pick your brain uh, for a couple minutes on the worldwide experience that you referenced in the very beginning about Black people worldwide having experienced a lot of oppression. I, I know that, you know, circling back to the archetype thing, there's this, you know, dark equals bad, light equals good. And then we like kind of play that out to skin tone. And, and so there's all these weird cultural introjects that happen. Um, if you would just ramble a bit for about for that, because you know we're in America and we're talking about this, but this is an international podcast, and and I want to pay heed to to some of the the different cultures that aren't uniquely American. Absolutely, I mean, I think I, I mean even though we largely do much of our work, you know, in the U.S., when we talk about um, the people that have been in contact with us on social media and kind of just like our website more generally, like there is an international audience in that, right? And some of the things we hear, it just, it's, it feels very similar in, in regard to in this particular community or in my family, it doesn't always feel safe to, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. talk about this problem. Um, and even just thinking from an international perspective too, on some of the things we talked about, um, we just did an interview with one of our, for the mentee program and one of the mentees, she's Haitian. And she talked about how in the Haitian community, um, you know, like it, particularly if you might, if you immigrant immigrate to the U.S., she feels like the, the expectation is to have very high academic performance, to, you know, be really respectful of your elders, Hmm. Um, to really uh, focus on whatever your achievement and goals are related to academics and success. And anything related to mental health or mental illness is almost not real. It's like, that's, that's not real. You have to focus here. Huh. Or there, it could be perceived as excuses sometimes, like for why you're not achieving. But, but, this, but your parents have sacrificed a lot to do certain things for you, right? And to, and to move here, et cetera. So I, I think of those narratives or those shares that people have given us across time um, about the, the multiple ways it can show up in culture, no matter where you are, and like the multiple ways in which um, aspects of your racial identity or ethnic identity can really play out and, and with really good intentions, right? Like this mother wants nothing but good things for her child, right? And so 
with really good intentions and, and how that space isn't always made. And so I think that that overlap is kind of seen, right? In that it's not always okay to even say you need the help. It's not always okay to actually go do the thing. And then when we do it, I don't always feel that when I do, I'm received fully right. or, or completely or in a, in a trusting space. So I can't speak to how a particular healthcare system works across aspects of the world, but um, I do know that there are those barriers that exist in, in that actual utilization and connection piece. Yeah, yeah, I guess to some, it's like, to sum it up, it's like the struggle is real and it's real everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah, and and often for the same reasons, which is I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, we could have this conversation for hours, I'm sure, but um, I I want to give the audience a a takeaway, some some kind of uh, you know exhortation or invitation or uh, something cool to just you know tuck under your pillow at night. So, what's one thing you would you would give uh, as we close off here? Yeah, I would just invite the audience to continuously learn more. I think sometimes. We are um, content with, you know, the, the information that is more easily accessible to us or just kind of comes naturally. And I want to just encourage people to like, think about the multiple ways in which whatever work you do can be more inclusive or more um, open to the range of cultures and people that exist, right? And, and think about like, what can you do in your space that may promote that? And if that requires for you to learn a little bit more, or to reach out to maybe people that have the expertise and you just facilitate that process or whatever, that is, 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 is a way. So I think sometimes we talk about allyship and we don't really make people feel like they have like a direct set of steps, right? So continuously educating yourself, thinking about what roles you play and how you can move systems. Like what system are you in? How can you influence that system to move in the direction of equity, right? Of inclusion, of the power of things being diverse and different and unique are the power of that, right? That, that's a good thing. It, it creates a, a greater group for everyone. Absol absolutely, it does. Yeah, I'd love that was succinctly put. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, blackmentalwellness.com. Anything else you want to leave uh, for people to contact you or your colleagues? Yeah, you can always contact us, info at blackmentalwellness.com. If you want to contact me directly, I'm Dr. Busby at blackmentalwellness.com. Um, check out our, our website. We have a ton of resources related to mental health and wellness, free resources. Um, and we also launched a, a Authentically Me t-shirt campaign, which is different sayings on shirts that really represent each of our own um, areas of passion or experiences with our wellness journey. And we share that story with our, our following um, and so those are also on the website, but one of those, up. what about social media? Oh, social media. We're at black mental wellness on Instagram, um, Twitter, Facebook, all the at black mental wellness. Yep. And it's been awesome. Thank you. I appreciate that. Danielle. Um, your time is, uh, very well, uh, honored and respected. I, I really deeply am, am grateful for it. And I know Safiso is also, and um, I, I will email you and hit you up about some other things because uh, yeah, there's like a lot of connections to, to make happen. <laughs> yeah, I love synergy. And uh, I think there's good stuff coming from this. So thank you. Appreciate it. You have, enjoy the rest of your afternoon and evening. And uh, I'll be in touch. All right. Thank you for having me. Bye. Bye. On behalf of the Naga Notes team and the Zephyr Wellness family, we wish you all great mental wellness. Bye. Bye.